Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. Paul Rudd. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of (laughs) a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the open. open. Fresh off another appearance at the Academy Awards, which I'm thrilled about, but even more thrilled. Producer Dan Stanzik was in the house, and we had a very memorable encounter with Kobe Bryant. In case you didn't listen last time, we'll recount that, including all the fun and frivolity of the Academy Awards, the 90th edition, a historic one to be a part of, not only as I mentioned the sports angle for those of us here at ESPN, but also a welcome sign of diversity. Guillermo del Toro, another Mexican director, wins Best Director, but also Jordan Peele, black writer, wins for original screenplay for Get Out. Uh, Coco, obviously winning for animated film. And every time there's going to be one award you're happiest about, I was so thrilled. Finally, Roger Deakins, Academy Award winner, one of the greatest cinematographers in the history of cinema, I've mentioned all the Coen Brothers movies he's worked on, The Man Who Wasn't There, and No Country for Old Men, Fargo. Of says he's can do, and he shot Sicario. I mean, there's there's so many movies to mention. So I'm so happy Deacon's finally got his moment. And as I'd mentioned in the last pod, uh, for those who are unaware, I was working for Oscar.com, so I don't actually get to watch the ceremony. So when I flew home Monday night, I watched it that night. Really enjoyed Deacon's speech. Uh, I thought he was classy and, and clearly humbled by the moment. Couldn't imagine losing 13 times. Uh, but it was awesome to be able to see. So coming up, we're not only going to tell the stories, me and Dan, of actually being there behind the scenes as everything was unfolding, but also the after party. Here's your tease. What did Will Arnett and I talk about? How did Matt Damon react when I approached him? <laughs> We've also got Jeff Ross in the mix, Jennifer Aniston, Jimmy Kimmel. It was unbelievable. Ben Lyons, once again, the maestro hooking it all up. Ben wanted to be with us, but he's at a... A golf tournament? I think that's just his way of saying he's at Spielberg's house. I mean, he's just... Lion's connections are unbelievable. He's 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 hobnobbing with everybody. I got so excited to see John Favreau, and Ben's like, oh, I know him. I can introduce you to him. I'm like, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'd rather go be a buffoon and talk about swingers with him. But it was a great experience. I Like I said, it's the second time for me, and it was just as special and just as memorable. Dan, your first Academy Awards experience, what was it like? Well... I mean, the first thing I did, I flew to Palm Springs, California on Thursday evening. I got there... I'm with my girlfriend and another couple. We're there for a wedding, one of their high school friends, and they want to go out for drinks. They're like, let's go out for drinks. And I'm like, okay, great. I kind of want to go right to sleep because I woke up early Friday morning and drove the two hours to Los Angeles to get my press credential. <laughs> so I park there. I'm, I don't know where the hell I'm going. I'm walking up escalators. I'm walking upstairs. I'm trying to follow people. I think I ended up asking. I get up there. I get in line. I, I finally get my credential. They take a picture of you. And then print out the credential pretty quickly, and they're very adamant. They're like, you cannot post this picture, this credential anywhere on social media. Uh, if you do that, we'll revoke the credential, et cetera, et cetera. So then it's the crack of dawn, and I go down, I go to Starbucks, I get you know a little coffee, and then go back down to the car to drive back to Palm Springs. And I'm like, oh, no, I forgot all about the parking pass that I needed for Sunday. So I have to go back up, uh, and I go see someone. She says, go to this room. I go to that room. They say, go back to the first room. And I'm like, well, she just told me to go to you. Uh, so I get the parking pass, and I leave. So then I go back. Sun. I come back Sunday for the event. By the way, you left none of this when I texted you Friday. I'm like, get your credentials. Like, yeah, all good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, very simple process. Not, for not you. a problem. Yeah. Um. So I come back Sunday. First time I've ever worn a tuxedo in my entire life. What's the company that hooked us up? BlackTux.com. Yeah. Black big Tux. sponsors on the Dan Lebetard show. Way to go, Allison. Uh, big time. And uh, so I put the tux on. Thank God. I remember last year for you with the bow tie. Oh. Mine was a, a pre-tied bow tie. So like the equivalent of a clip-on tie for those that went to Catholic school and uh, <laughs> parochial elementary school. Good use of parochial. Yeah. Um, so all good there. And uh, same deal. Drove two hours. And everyone freaks out about this L.A. traffic. Not awful. Right. I, I think, like, if you're going to work on, like, Monday through Friday, it's probably miserable. I don't think I was stuck not moving for any longer than, like, 40 seconds at any point. Like, once you got close to L.A., it was pretty bad. But I, I got there fine two hours, like, both times. 
And so I had to park. I think you asked me parking pretty easy, parked like a mile and a half away and then got in a shuttle, waited for a while, but then the shuttle took me right there. And again, I had to walk like two blocks. I didn't really know where I was going, but I followed some other members of the press and there was a clear divide. A woman's looking at you. You got a color on your, on your press credential, which you again can't tweet out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you could go left or you could go right. You could go right and it was pretty clear that's taking you right to the red carpet. Awesome. This woman took one look at me. She goes, yeah, go this way. Okay. See <laughs> so then I go up some stairs and I'm up some stairs and I can look down at the red carpet and there's actually like an audience there. It looks like I think you made it seem like it's like a high school basketball game. Right. There's like a bleacher of like six or seven bleachers and there's fans there. I don't know if they sell those tickets or not. Yeah. And I can kind of see, but it's kind of far. So I just stood there for a minute and then I, I walked into the, the area, the press area, the me- the media room, mm-hmm. and I uh, texted you and said, where are you? And sure enough, there you were, and you, you stunned me for media <laughs> dining. I'm about to grab myself a, a water, and you almost tackled me. Yeah, I also uh, did not have the red carpet privileges that I had a year ago. Last year, for those who listened, I was wandering aimlessly. I think I was... Uh I think I was on Kimmel, actually, at one point, because you could see me in the background just wandering and approaching uh, the likes of Jeff Bridges and Vigo Mortensen. This year, they were wise to me and said, all right, that's it. You can get a few pictures. Me and my wife, Eamon, went on the red carpet. Uh, obviously, got some pictures with Ben. We taped some stuff for Instagram. I'm like, all right, you get out of there. So that's why I saw Dan so quickly, uh, right around three-ish local time. So then we hung out for a bit. We caught up. And then uh, we tell the story about me upsetting the guy. So... Everyone in the media room where I was, there's probably what, like 200 people in there? Like yeah. big long tables and everyone has an assigned seat. And More it says, or less than you thought it would be. I'd say I, it was bigger than I expected. Yeah. I first thought the room was going to be smaller and I'd be more confident and ask more questions. And so you get a seat and I, I just put my bag down there. Great. So we went, they finally bring food out, like actual food. It was, there's some more derbs before, plenty of drinks, non-alcoholic. Uh, and so we finally get actual food, me, you and Eamon waiting in line. We get our food. And so we go right to where my seat is and your wife's like, Oh, can I sit in your seat? I'm like, sure. So me and you are standing and eating. Sure. You have to go to the bathroom. So you put your food down on the chair in front of us, which ends up being the chair that's right that I'm looking at. <laughs> so. All of a sudden, I'm standing there eating, minding my own business, and next thing I know, this man walks up to me, doesn't say anything, looks at me like an 11 out of 10 on the angry scale, and I, I'm like kind of freaking out. I'm like, why is this guy staring a hole through me? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry, is this your seat? And I pick up your plate, which was on his seat, and like move it away, and he just like shakes his head and sits down, and you run in like, oh, sorry, 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 I'll get that way, I'll get that other way. And you should have seen the look on this guy. I was petrified. And then I'm thinking, like, I'm going to be staring at this man the entire ceremony. And I was. <laughs> Later on in the evening, he did. Uh, we did make up, for lack of a better term. He, he, he thanked me for something I did later on. It was amazing seeing your open mouth shock and then Eamon's look as well. I'm like, well, what? Like, so I immediately went in the other room to go eat because, guy, I get out of here now. When I texted you, I go, how bad? And you said, 11 out of 10. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And as you said, you only had to sit next to the guy, stare across from the entire time. But you guys made up after the Kobe moment. Then he had newfound respect for you as a veteran journalist that you are. Uh, so then the Oscars begins, and it's a blast. You know, for those who are not watching on Oscar.com, I'm narrating the whole time with Ben, and Lions is, is great because, you know, when you know somebody so well, at this point, we're just ping-ponging, right? I know what movies he's seen. He knows what I'm into, so we're just kind of having a great rhythm. And, of course, Sophia Carson's great. She's back with us again, and she's watched all the movies, so she has lots of input. She's an actress. She's a singer. So, that, you know, everybody there has a different perspective. But it's a ton of fun, and people keep texting because they don't realize, or maybe they do, and they just forget, but that I'm not watching. So someone says, hey, did you see Camille and then Gianni's joke? I'm like, no. Like, did you see what Kimmel said about Damon? I'm like, no, I missed it. I was talking the whole time. But Rich, our, our fearless director, at one point was trying to kind of switch us out a little bit. So he said, do you, you want to take five? I'm like, sure. Because Ben and Sophia were at the red carpet where I was just hanging out with, with Dan. So I was like, yeah, everybody knows in TV or in radio, you got five minutes to take your five minutes. So he's like, you want to go? I'm like, I'll take it. So I go to the bathroom. And this was right after Kobe had won, which was a great moment because Kobe was right behind us. And Dan can attest to the fact he looked so giddy. Like, he looked so thrilled with the moment. Like, we saw Rockwell first because he was an early winner. And he's cool. Like, Rockwell's got a ton of swag, and I'm so happy that he won. But, like, Kobe looked so delirious with joy. And so I run to the bathroom. I see Stanzik, and I go, hey, did you did you talk to me? He's like, yeah. I, I got, okay, now tell your story what you, what you asked him. Okay, so it, it, I'm going to rewind a little bit. Sure. So we first get, we're probably like two minutes before the ceremony, and there's a, a moderator in the press room, yeah. and she's explaining like the rules and how things are going to work. The first thing she said, by the way, which I haven't told you yet, but I'm sure you've heard, she yeah. said, "Hey guys, I know a lot went on this year, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to let you know we want to keep the focus on the actual awards in movies." 
So pretty much a direct message of, hey, let's not ask about the Me Too movement. Let's keep it to the films. And we're all like shaking our heads like, all right, and we'll see. I mean, if I got a question to ask, I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. So she also says in that process, we all have numbers in front of us. It's almost like an auction. I have number 24. More on that later. And so she says, if there's someone you absolutely want to ask a question to, because we don't have time for all of you to ask questions to every single winner, come up to me as soon as you find out that they won, and I'll put your name, number on a list, and I'll try to work everybody in, but no guarantees. Okay, fine. So I see that Kobe wins, and I'm like, I have to. I'm I'm the lone representative from ESPN Radio, probably the only sports journalist there. <laughs> Just called myself a journalist. We'll take it. That's true. And so as soon as he wins, I run up to her, and I say, hey, I'm Dan Sanzik with ESPN Radio. would love to ask Kobe a question. Awesome. So about 20 minutes go by, and then finally they're like, all right, Kobe is coming to speak to us at the lectern. I'm told the podium is if something that is elevated. The lectern is just something you speak in front of. Good call, lectern. Um, so Kobe comes out there, and they're like, okay, time for questions for Kobe. So I stand up and hold my number 24 up in the air, and I'm pretty sure I'm the first person that went up to her and said, I want to ask a question. So she starts calling on, on numbers. She says, all right, we'll start with 76, and then we'll go to 304. And there's people walking around handing microphones. So we're like five or six questions in. And as you mentioned, Kobe, absolutely giddy. He even said it was a better feeling winning the Oscar than winning any of the five championships. And he said the reason was because once he retired and told everybody he wants to get into storytelling in his post-basketball career, everyone kind of laughed and said, you'll be back in the NBA in some capacity. So he felt validated winning. So back to the questions. This woman's like, all right, we'll go here, we'll go here, we'll go here. And literally like three people right around me ask questions. And I'm like, there's no way she's going to call on me. Finally, she says, all right, we'll go to uh, 46 and then 24. And I'm like, okay, perfect. So someone walks up to me and they're about to hand me a microphone. Question by whoever 46 was, Kobe answers. And I get handed a microphone. And then the moderator says, I'm sorry, everybody, but I'm being told we have no time left. What? We only have time for one more question. Woo! I'm like, okay. oh. So I have the microphone in front of me. For, for non-sportsmen, by the way, Kobe wore jerseys 8 and 24. So oh, was, yes, correct. Yeah. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. The first person to ask the question was actually number 81. <laughs> oh, no. And Kobe famously scored 81 points. So he made that reference. I didn't even know that I had, I didn't even get the 24 connection until someone working back here in Bristol pointed it out to me. Nice. Um, so I have a microphone in my hands where I'm most comfortable. And right away, when that woman says that, I say, oh, wow, lucky for me. Let's go. Kobe, what's up? Dan Sanzik, ESPN Radio. Yes. <laughs> and then I asked him. The, I mean, we have it. Then I asked him the following question. You referenced the shut up and dribble comments in your acceptance speech. Why did you do that? And what do you think of LeBron's approach to handling politics and discussing them, which is so different from your hero, Michael Jordan's approach? Well, I mean, I think everybody must approach things as if, you know, from from their position of whatever is comfortable to, for, you know, for them. Um, I think for us, not just as athletes, but as just people in general, we have the ability to speak up for what it is that we believe in, whether you're a professional athlete or not, um, whether you're an actor or not, you still have the ability to speak up for what it is that you believe in, and and as well as people have the right to criticize that. I mean, this is this is the democracy that we live in. That's what makes America beautiful. Good answer. I was going to say, because you told me after, so I see you in the, in the hallway, you're like, ah. Because I didn't know anything, and you're like, he referenced shut up and dribble. I'm like, he did? And you're like, yeah, I asked him. I'm like, he did? What did he say? And then you told me the answer. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'm like, that's, and I'm like, how did nobody else ask that? You're like, exactly. I was the last one. I'm like, that's the first thought I had was like, dude, you mentioned shut up and dribble. What we're failing to realize, and that I didn't realize either, is that this is the Academy Awards media. This, this isn't, these aren't sports journalists. Right. So I'm sitting at this table, and there's people doing live updates around me, and they're writing scripts. They didn't even know where the shut up and dribble comments originated from. I had to explain to like six people around me, listen, it started with LeBron James was on this podcast with Carrie Champion and they're driving around in a car with Kevin Durant. He criticized Trump and then Laura Ingram on her Fox News show told him to shut up and dribble. And that's what Kobe was referring to. So they like no one knew the backstory. I'm like doing editing for people sitting next to me and then I'm hearing them do all these live updates. And so I guess it makes sense. I also wanted to ask Kobe about the Me Too movement, but I didn't have time for that. That would have been a little, a little more aggressive. Yeah. Um, which was, it was wild. So that was the last question for Kobe. He gets whisked off the stage and then I go out in probably 20 minutes later. I, you know, the television broadcast takes a commercial. So I go out in the hallway and coincidentally enough, I see you standing there walking back from the bathroom. You must have been on your five minute break. 
And we're sitting there and I'm telling you and you're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, well, I'll tweet this out. You ask Kobe. We'll, we'll get to that in the post-Oscars pod, which we posted on Sunday night. And who should come walking towards us but Kobe Bryant? And we're standing there. And you, obviously there's handlers, people that work for the Oscars that are whisking Kobe somewhere. And you just aggressively are, Kobe, what's up? Congratulations. And he stops and he sees me. And I I think he recognized me, correct? Yeah, I was about to say, he didn't recognize me. Somebody goes, hey, did you know? I'm like, no, no, no. I think what happened is Dan had just asked him a question, and you had said ESPN Radio, or they had introduced you as such, so he just knew, hey, sports guy, ESPN, and he doesn't know me, but you're right, I was just aggressive, like, hey, Kobe, what's up, man, congrats, and he says, oh, yeah, and it was so funny, because I think, along with the unbridled joy, he's with all these movie people, and it probably just feels out of place, he saw us, a couple of young sports guys, and he's like, yeah, sports guys, right, dropped like about six F yeah's, because he's like, pump fist, like, yeah, like, <laughs> these guys get it, like, yeah, he was just screaming <laughs> over and over, like, yeah! I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And then you brought up your guy, Cabby, who Kobe knew, and it was a whole thing. Right. I go, hey, man, my man, Cabby in Toronto, you know, he's a good friend of mine. We went to school together. I know you guys done stuff. He's like, oh, Cabby's my dude, man. He's the best. So I text Cab that. He's like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. He's like, can I tweet that out? I'm like, yeah, of course, man, do it. So we both got pictures of the, it was crazy. So I go back to the Oscar.com broadcast, and they keep putting up pictures on Instagram, and I immediately posted it. You weren't supposed to post, I think, for us on Twitter. You could put it on Instagram. So Lions comes back from our show and goes, oh, look, I think he goes to the bathroom. And then apparently he just accosted Kobe Bryant. So they ran the picture on our broadcast as well. So it was a very, very cool moment, uh, moment rather. And, uh, like I said, it was, it was awesome. I wish we had the audio of them actually saying, all right, number 24, USP radio is Dan Stancic. I'm sure it's somewhere and we could probably get it. But the fact that we had that is, is plenty yeah. enough for me. Yes, it is, it is definitely verification that you did ask the best question of the night and that you were there. So the Oscars unfolds. Most of it's pretty, um, I wouldn't say predictable, but it went according to script. By the way, shout out to Rick Passmore. Now we're going to hear from Ricky, who, of course, was tabulating on Twitter the entire time. So thanks to all those following Cinephile ESPN, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E ESPN. Ricky's taken over the account. It's unbelievable. We're up 30% since January 1st in terms of followers. Thanks to the Levitard Army. I had three sneak attacks last week. I had one again yesterday on the show. People love it. So I keep getting all these tweets, and they're very generous. But I said, listen, if you want to thank me, just go to Cinephile on iTunes and subscribe. You don't have to listen. That's fine. Just subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe again, and post and review on iTunes. And thanks to all the Levitard Army who has done that. Appreciate that. And, Ricky, what was it like for you? You're obviously tabulating and interacting with people throughout the night. So this is different from the past. Obviously, you're always locked to the Oscars, but you were keeping tabs because we did these confidence picks. Explain that for people. So people familiar with ESPN and especially with uh, Bowl Mania during college football times understand that you pick uh, – the games you're most confident in to the games you're least confident in, not just the regular pick them. It kind of adds a little dynamic to, uh, to the contest. So one to 24, we pick the winners. Uh, and throughout the night, the, the leaderboard keeps varying. Like point spreads make it different. Even when we were picking the same picks, Rick, I feel spread. like I was leading the whole way. You were, Every you were up there. You were up there for a while. Now I, I got to give another shout out to Ben. He was seven for seven early. He was, he was pitching a no hitter or pitching a perfect game through seven. Then came some of the other categories, and he went like 0 for 3. So he kind of he kind of fell off there, and that's where Ben ended up in fourth place. Uh, but throughout the night, it's it's just going back and forth, and it's making it more interesting. And I'm making the gifts and the leaderboard to put up there to keep everything current. And then right at the end, I'm looking at we, the final four categories: best actor, best actress, best director, best picture. All four of us have the same exact picks. So we were looking at the numbers, and I'm sitting in third place. Ben's way behind. Sorry, Ben. You had the Globes. You didn't get the Oscars this time. <laughs> Go ahead, Danny. Uh, real quick, I, I did have The Shape of Water. You guys had three billboards yeah. winning Best Picture. I had as a number one on the confidence pick. So the, it was the least confident pick I made, so it wasn't going to swing any of the standings. Which was smart, because we all had said it was virtually a toss-up. I think I had it maybe at four yeah, points. We all, we all had Shape yeah. of Water, but it was all varying where the confidence was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had three billboards, but I had it as a low. You had it in pick. your, you had it in another pick. Oh. You had it in your oh. gold derby, but for our competition, the the tally you sent me had oh. three had a uh, shape of water. Okay, I may have been so cheating on myself. You, you had a you had a bunch Ma of them all over the place. Well, well Mark Simon definitely called out Stanzik because he tweeted. He goes, "Oh, only one one point there on your best picture." And you're like, "Well, yeah, it's a toss up." Everyone's saying yeah. that's the closest race, so I don't have any confidence in it. I'll put 24 points on Gary Oldman. I'll put 23 on Francis McDormand. Yeah, I which is what I did to on Rockwell. I'll put 21 on Allison Janney. And original screenplay is the one I did not feel confident about because I picked three billboards, but I said Get Out's got a good chance. And the loudest roar of the night. Was when Get Out won.
because Ben, Sophia, and I are talking all the time, and I just heard an eruption. So this is what we're doing. Again, picture it. We're talking, and then we'll cheat because we can see the actual broadcast. So we'll look to our right and see, okay, the winner is, and you can tell by the reaction. And when I looked over, I thought Greta Gerwig won for a second because I heard the roar, and I saw her face, and she looked really thrilled. And I'm like, wow, Lady Bird's on the board. And I was like, no, get out one. I'm like, yes. And he had won at the Writers Guild Award, uh, Jordan Peele, so it shouldn't have been a complete shock. As I said, it was close. But once that one, Ben goes, are you, are you now, um, doubting your best picture? And I said, well, maybe Get Out's going to win best picture. If the, if the Academy is that thrilled that he just won for Scream, maybe he's going to win best picture. Uh, and terrific speech. I like the fact that he mentioned word of mouth and going to the theater because that's how this movie was a hit. He goes, thanks to everybody who saw it and thanks to everybody for telling everybody to go see it because that's how this movie became such a huge hit. So that was definitely a great night. After that, it was fairly straightforward. Again, Del Toro was great. Big cuddly teddy bear. I'm glad that he won. Dan came over. He was coming back and forth with, with me and where he was in the press room. He goes, Hey, Del Toro mentioned Cagney. And I'm like, Oh, did he say, oh, he quoted Cagney. I go, Oh, did he say made it ma? Top of the world. The famous uh, line from White Heat. He goes, No. I go, What did he say? He goes, and the line was, as James Cagney said, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. I'm like, oh, that's not the quote I would think of if someone said James Cagney. But very cool that he quoted Cagney, who I love. Another person that you love did get a shout-out, too. So now that you've oh, seen yeah. the actual broadcast, yeah, yeah. You, you saw Sam Rockwell's acceptance speech. Right. So I love how they keep saying Phil Hoffman. Of course, he's talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman. But he mentioned him at the end of his speech, one of my favorite actors. And we would go live on Oscar.com to some of the post uh, game reaction, if you will, because they'd be talking to the media where Dan had asked Kobe the question. So when we, we tossed to Rockwell, meaning we had the sound there in our broadcast, the first thing he said was, Oh, you, I heard Rockwell says, Oh, you heard that. Okay. Good. I wasn't sure the music was playing me off there. Yeah. And he started talking with Phil Hoffman. And then Dan told me afterwards, I guess he mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman right at the end because then of the press music, Oh, you caught that, right? Okay. Good. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure everyone heard that. And they talked quite eloquently. Yeah. He said he could talk about Phil Hoffman for hours. And he, the first thing he said is he was like, I'm glad you heard that. And he said, are you trying to make me cry? Cause I'm going to start crying if I talk about him. He also heard a great story in his acceptance speech about when he was eight years old. He got called to the principal's office yeah. and his father was there <laughs> and his father said it's something about grandma. So they get in the car and he's like, what's wrong with grandma? What's wrong with grandma? He goes, nothing. I'm taking you to the movies, which was one of the greatest <laughs> moments I thought from the broadcast. <laughs> that was an awesome speech and an awesome moment. By the way, link to Philip Seymour Hoffman. They both auditioned sent of a woman and rockwell when he auditioned he told the casting director he goes i'm not right for this and it was me and he goes i just i don't think i'm right for this one and he goes as a 12 year old how old were they i know philip seymour hoffman's in it but he's one of the kids what was he 18 yeah probably around that age 92 is when it came out so maybe early 20s because see rockwell's now 49 so yeah i guess the math would add up but he, they ended up casting Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, for that role. And he goes, Phil was perfect as that, that just obnoxious schoolboy who's in Chris O'Donnell's ear. And then obviously Pacino tells him off at the end. So interesting link back then. Because they're asking Rockwell, it's so interesting. I love when the, the actors say about roles that they missed on. He's like, oh, there's so many that I, that I auditioned for that I didn't get. ER, he also auditioned for the Noah Wiley character. He said, I was close on it. And I didn't get it. But he goes, yeah, you always think about projects you could have had. But he goes, I thought they made the right decision, obviously, getting Phil with Scent of a Woman. Also, great speech, of course, is Francis McDormand. Thankfully, on the Oscar.com broadcast, we laid out. That's a TV term meaning that we just we stopped talking and we just took the speech. So I actually did hear Francis McDormand. It's unbelievable. And she said at the end, as you heard in the last podcast, inclusion writer. And uh, Ben thought it was writer, but I was with Dan that he meant writer, R-I-D-E-R. And we now understand what that means. So an inclusion rider is something that you put in your contract, and it just makes sure that there's no wage disparity among genders and races. And so that was her point of saying, you know, this is really what's uh, impactful, this. Let's ride this. And she goes, and now it's not just going to a party and someone saying, hey, come to my office. How about you come to my office? And we're going to have a real conversation and start to make waves. So obviously a brilliant speech from Francis McDormand. At the end, when they all came backstage, the coolest moment backstage, they had all four acting winners. And I yelled to Francis McDormand, great speech. And she turned to me and just mouthed the words, and I was like, all right, Francis McDormand. And then did you steal her Oscar later? Was that you? I, I, unbelievable story. Again, I was like, what happened? They're like, yeah, Francis McDormand's Oscar was stolen. I'm like, what? Is there no humanity in this world? I also, as my wife was then embarrassed, because then I, the broadcast is over, I could just turn into a, a clown that I am. So when Olbin was there, I, I just started yelling out movies past where I go, I, I go, Sid Nancy. He's like, yeah. And then I go, Romeo is bleeding. And he looked over at me when I go, true romance. And he did smile and give me like a little wink. I'm like, yes. I'm like, who's the guy just yelling out Gary Olbin movies? So you basically became me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then I just go, hey, this is done, right? Okay, bow tie off. I can just start screaming like a lunatic. Guillermo is yelling at Guillermo, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim. <laughs> We've got to get passport there next year because where I am is the press room. It's all the photographers. 
as Dan can attest, and they're screaming. They're just, look over here, look over here, because they want the shot right there. Francis, Francis, look at me, look at me. Allison, Allison, we love you, West Wing. Like, there's just a bunch of, honestly, just jackals screaming. So we got to get past more to be one of those jackals taking pictures next year for ESPN. And then Dan will be next door asking questions to Kobe. I'll just be sitting back snagging pictures when they're in the vicinity. I'll just wait until they look over by and just... Boom, quick burst, go, and let someone else yell, save my voice. That's another thing. You're not supposed to take pictures backstage, but the other are laughing. Like one guy literally with his iPhone, and I don't know, maybe he was with our crew, so I shouldn't come up, but he literally just like his close-up of Gamer takes picture, and the screen goes, oh, I can't take a picture. He's like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> like, well, he already got the picture. Like, if it was really impactful, you'd go, hey, delete that picture. I'm sorry there's no picture. He's like, all right. Oh, sorry about that. My and bad. then he tried to yell at another guy who's taking pictures of Del Toro, and so he's yelling at him, and the guy goes, I'm a producer on the film. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. In that case, go ahead. <laughs> That's how we got to get me in there. We got to produce something. So yes. I can just say I'm a producer on the film. Just complete, completely bypass that whole, uh, that whole. I policy. think we can scrounge together enough pennies to get password to just make an animation short, right? Five and a half minutes. And it doesn't have to live no- short. Live short's easier. Okay. Live short doesn't have to get nominated. We'll just say I'm a producer on the film. Like, oh, which one? It was, uh, it was a live action short. Was it nominated? Let's not get into the details here. Okay. I'm just, I did a film here. Uh, so that was really cool. And then Dan made the drive back to Palm Springs. How'd that go, by the way? I was worried how tired you might be. I was pretty tired, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I made it back. Okay. Safe and sound in not any traffic really late at night. So it worked yeah. out pretty well. That's right. Fair. We just get through, get back there. Lions has hooked us up with Jimmy Kimmel's after party. So he, me, my wife, Amen, his lovely wife, Mariah, we all go to Kimmel's after party. Kimmel's unbelievable. The guy just hosted the Oscars and then they've got all this food out there and he's going to each one. You know, filming like a minute, two minute bits and like, you know, just thanking them and tasting the food. Like he's unbelievably gracious. And he's the first person we saw. And I just want to quickly say hi. And so after he was kind of being moved from one spot to another, I just go, Hey, I'm Adnan Verk from ESPN. Loved having Lee Corso, Herb Street and, um, Chris Fowler on, on the show. Cause they had him. He's like, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. We always try to get your guys on there. I'm like, yeah, for sure. And Trevor, one of Kimmel's producers recognized me. So he was like, Oh yeah, go talk to Jimmy. Say hi to him. And I said, I'm real quick. I just got a picture for my wife. It's like, yeah, oh, we're not supposed to do that, but okay, sure, no problem. Quick picture, my wife goes, I loved your monologue about healthcare. He goes, oh, thanks so much. And he goes, oh, she asked how his son is doing. He's like, oh, he's doing much better. Thanks for asking. Appreciate that. And then there's a guy named Yaya who's on Kimmel, who's this Pakistani guy who had, in, who was like so happy to see me once he figured out my family's Pakistani as well. So then I said to Kimmel, we just met Yaya as well. He goes, oh, don't, don't talk to that guy. No, he's not going to leave you all night. And then Jimmy walked away. Kind of wasn't kidding about Yaya. Everywhere I saw him, he was really excited to see me. He's like, all right. So, uh, but he's a great guy, very funny, very outgoing. Uh, and then after that, it was so funny. You know, Ben and Mariah, listen, like I said, he's at Spielberg's place right now having a martini. Ben does this all the time, right? And Mariah, they're just hanging out, having a good time. Eamon and I are like eyes open, like, okay, who else can we see here? So she points over and goes, oh, it's Will Arnett. I'm like, yes, Will Arnett, for those longtime listeners of Cinephile, first ever guest we've ever had on the podcast. He's unbelievable. But that was like two years ago. I kept in touch with him a little bit. DMs here and there. Canada World Cup. He was watching when I was with Hull and um, Chelios. Uh, when he filled in for Kimmel, I sent him a message. But I was like, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to bug him. And he was talking to a couple of guys. I'll leave Will alone for a little bit. Later on, he's talking to a couple of girls. I'm like, I don't want to get in there. But then I saw some other chowder head going in. And he's just wearing out Arnett. Like, I could see it. It was just like, okay, like, you want to just say hi? That's fine. But this guy's wearing him out. He's like, oh, you're the funniest guy here. Well, I was like, all right, thanks, thanks. All right, moving on. One of the women turns, and my wife goes, it's Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> I was like, yes. And I, listen, Jennifer Aniston's awesome, but I'm not going to geek out like crazy, but my wife is going to. So she goes over, waits for her moment and goes, and cause we quickly realized after the Kimmel picture, that was our fault. You just shouldn't ask for pictures. So she goes, I'm not going to ask you for a picture. I just want to say I'm a huge fan. Love you. And Jennifer says, Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, so she had her Jennifer Aniston moment, which Eamon told me was her highlight of the entire weekend. I'm like, all right. And then I, I catch Arnett's eye and he's like, Hey, what's up, man? So boom. So we hug it out. And I said, that clip of you with Mitch Marner was unbelievable. On Hockey Night in Canada recently, Mitch Marner, who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs, is being interviewed, and you see Will Arnett walk by and go, hey, big fan, man, and he gives him a fist bump, keeps walking. I go, that was hilarious. Arnett goes, I'm there with my brother and my dad and my nephew, and I didn't know they were filming. He goes, he's tight with Brendan Shanahan, who's the Leafs president. And Will said he was just walking around. He didn't know they were alive. He's like, hey, what's up, buddy? And afterwards, like, hey, you're on Hockey Night in Canada. He, he was just laughing about the ridiculousness of it. But Will, a typical Canadian, typical Torontonian, goes, oh, I mean, this stuff's great, but all I care about is the Leafs. Bad game last night. And I'm like, how ridiculous is this? I'm, me and Will and Ned are having a Toronto Maple Leafs conversation at a post-Oscars party hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. So we talk a little bit about that. And then I asked him about Arrested Development, which is, of course, all I care about. And I said, everything's good. He said, yeah, yeah, we're just finishing up 
uh, shooting. I talked to Mitch yesterday. Mitchell Horowitz is, of course, the executive producer. And I said, come to ESPN again, man, especially when Arrested comes out again. He's like, oh, for sure. I had a great time. It was great seeing you. And then uh, I left him alone. So it was great to see Will. And then Matt, so then, then we tra- traver- traffic our way back to the front. And who walks in but Matt Damon? <laughs> and then my wife gets really excited. I'm like, just play it cool. And Ben is so funny. When David walks in, lines turns to him and says, man, don't let anybody in this party. And, and David right away like, obviously knows him, laughs. Like, ah, what's up? So I'm like, this is great. Ben lines and David are, are joking around together. And his wife is with him. We say hi. And then a girl walks by and I go, I think that was Miley Cyrus, and it was indeed Miley Cyrus, because my wife's an idol her too. And like, this is now getting really bizarre. We're talking to Matt Damon. My wife noticed something really good about Matt when he introduced himself. He said, hey, I'm Matt. And she's like, yeah, like, I wouldn't know who he is. I said, no, but it's an endearing characteristic when someone just says, hey, how you doing? They introduce themselves as you would at any event. So Damon and Ben talk from inner two. He was very nice. He moves on. Then I saw Jeff Ross, and I got, I just got to get one thing with Jeff Ross. So he walks away, and I, and I just, hey, that Ann Coulter roast, one of the all-time classics. And Jeff goes, oh, you got good taste in humor. I like that. I'm like, all right. Then I see John Favreau. And Ben's like, again, I, I know, John. I can introduce you. I'm like, no, I just want to tell him I love Swingers. I went over to John Favreau. I'm like, hey, man, Swingers one of my favorite comedies. the best. He's like, oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. So at this point, I think we've uh, proven that we can be uh, as obnoxious as possible. We've intercepted every possible celebrity. Uh, it's obviously been a wonderful night. And last but not least... We're about to, but I am pretty tired right now. I'm not driving two hours like Dan had to do, but I'm like, all right, it's been a long day here. Let's just get going. It's probably about 1 a.m. now. And I see Michael Keaton and his wife getting some French fries. And I'm pondering, how do I talk to Michael Keaton? All right. What, what, you know, cause the first thing it was Batman. I'm like, well, don't mention Batman. I'm like, well, Spotlight. I'm like, well, it just came out. Birdman. Like, I don't know. Think of something. So my wife goes, I'm going to go over and get some fries while you think of what to say. So I'm waiting in line. Michael Keaton turns to me and says, I thought he just said, hey, man, and shook his hand, just being polite. My wife goes, no, obviously he said, hey, Adnan, because he then turned to his wife and said, oh, he's a big movie guy. Or he, I think he said the sports guy, but he's a big movie guy. And he for sure then knew I was. I was convinced because he said, how's Cream doing? And I'm like, yes. I didn't know. And I'm, I'm searching in my head frantically. To, 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 is there, I'm, I know Michael is a Pittsburgh guy because I was about to bring up the Pirates. I know he's a big baseball fan. But I said, is there an Indiana link? Did Michael Keaton go to Indiana? Does he know Tom Crean somehow? Like, I Passport, do you have any intel on this? Well, he went to Kent State. He's okay. from Pittsburgh. Okay. He's from the Pittsburgh area, went to Kent State. And I believe that's, like, not the Kent State connection, but just that Midwest region. Okay. That might be where the connection comes okay. from. So he says, how's Crean doing? I go, oh, he's great. Like, he's, uh, for those who do not know, Tom Crean coached for Indiana, and he's a terrific college basketball analyst with us. He's so funny. And that's why I said to Michael, I said, I knew he was great uh, as, a, as a basketball guy, but I didn't know how funny he was. He's like, oh, yeah, he's unbelievable. Then we start talking with the Pirates, because as I said, I knew Michael was a big Pirates fan, and I said, oh, I'm sorry they traded McCutcheon. He's like, oh, it's brutal. You know, Garrett Cole's gone. And he goes, you know, that park is so good. I, and I, he goes, yeah, it's the best. And he goes, I go, it's so sad. Like, that park is unbelievable. It's the best in baseball. And yet, this is what ownership's doing, training everybody. And then Michael Keaton, with his great comic timing, says, I was in such a good mood before I started talking to you. <laughs> I'm bringing him down with his Pirates. But then I did say, hey, I love John uh, with Neil Everett, because he was on the LA Sports Center. Last summer, promoting American Assassin. And Michael was impressed that I remembered American Assassin. He was like, oh, I love that guy. Neil's the best. I said, yeah. And I said, right, I've taken up enough of your time. But I just want to say one more thing. He goes, yeah. I said, I love the movie Game 6. Nobody ever talks about that. He's like, oh, yeah, Game 6. He goes, we made that movie for like a million bucks. <laughs> he goes, that was like as low budget as it gets. He goes, thanks, man. I go, no, no, honestly, you were great in that film. And it's a terrific movie. And it was awesome. And then my wife said, what about Beetlejuice 2? And I think he kind of rolled his eyes or kind of just shrugged. Like, I think it's like, oh, whatever. Who knows with this kind of stuff? And I said, last thing I get a picture, no problem. So Michael Keaton is awesome. Has the reputation to be one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. And I can verify that is absolutely true. So that was our Oscars experience, part two. It was a ton of fun and uh, as enjoyable as it was the first time. And, and I cannot ever thank Ben Lines enough because he's the one who hooked me up with this gig. Somehow, improbably, I've covered the Academy Awards twice. And, of course, thanks to Pete Genesini, who first gave us the green light with Cinephile. Uh, which is how Ben uh, was able to convince the people at, at the Academy to, to bring us along. And, of course, to Dan for doing this and the fact he got to be part of it. And next, we're going to get Passmore, video editor, somehow involved uh, with the Academy Awards. Just one couple final thoughts here just on the show itself. This is me, a rousing rendition from the from uh, that Showman movie, which is apparently the greatest showman. The greatest showman, Hugh Jackman. Is, Hugh Jackman's film. It's supposed to be a pretty uh, trite, I think is the best word to describe it. I did not hear glowing reviews about it. But I watched the, and I said, if you were just rating the winner based on the performance, unbelievable. Like that is, and the Gold Derby guys had said to me, humble brag, minus the humility, I was number one on Gold Derby among 30 entertainment experts, 21 of 24, uh, which was, I, the Academy did notice people I was working with because they sent me the headline the next day. It said, Verk is number one among all the entertainment analysts, experts who cover the industry. I'm like, yeah. 
How do they feel, by the way? Like, how does Peter Travers feel this morning? He's like, who's this guy at ESPN who just killed it? Like, I'm going to go in the March Madness pool and prove to those guys what I know about college basketball. But, um, yeah, I, I thought if you just, they had said to me, Beecham goes, with original song, generally it's the most uplifting song that wins. So Remember Me is the favorite, but it's a very melodic, haunting, sweet song. Because This Is Me is one of those just like powerful showstoppers. And if you watch the show, it was a great performance. She starts crying at one point. It was, it was awesome. I actually watched it twice when I watched it again on DVR. I'm like, what a hell of a song. NBC used it a lot during the Olympics. Once I heard the song, I said, oh, like, I've seen this in the montages with Michaela Schifrin and all the rest of it. So that was a really cool moment. We mentioned the speeches, obviously. Uh, Del Toro, I love the Del Toro moment after he won and he showed the envelope and it kind of had that giddy look, which they really made into a gift that yes, the envelope was correct. By the way, the Academy people told me Friday night when we went out for dinner that the Beatty Dunaway was supposed to be a surprise. And they said, you know, it's unfortunate in this day and age, everything gets leaked, everything's on social media. But imagine if nobody had known and then they just announced Best Picture, oh, they're back again. Maybe people would like it, maybe they wouldn't like it, but it would be nice to have an honest, uh, genuine reaction to people going, oh, they're back again. When you knew that it was coming, it wasn't maybe quite the same, but it was still nice to see them at least redeemed in that moment. So the 90th Academy Awards, I think by and large, they got it right. People are saying, my buddy sits six arrows, should I watch The Shape of Water? Listen, it's enchanting, it's beautiful, and I thought it, it's it's a wonderful piece of work, but it's not to all taste. So watch 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, Mike Golick somehow suffered through it and hated it, so... I don't ever tell someone you have to see it. I always wonder what movies are you into, and then I kind of make my assessment there. On the plane right out there again, again was watching Logan for like the third time. The movies, the choices I had was, um, what's the horror? Unfortunately, we love Matt Damon. Suburbicon was the choice, and I go, this is like 29% Rotten Tomatoes. It's directed by Clooney, or I can just watch Logan again. So I just popped in Logan before I fell asleep again. So uh, awesome, awesome experience. Thanks to Ben Lies. Thanks to everybody involved with it. Now, speaking of Ben, as I said, he's at Spielberg's house right now, but he did catch up with Brian Fogel, who won the Academy Award for Icarus. So thrilled for him because it's a great documentary on Netflix about Russian doping. Here is Ben's interview with Brian Fogel. All right, joining me right now on the Cinephile Podcast, he's the director of the Oscar-nominated Icarus. It's Brian Fogel. And have you gotten used to that? introduction the oscar nominated icarus considering you've been working on this film for almost five years at this point i have absolutely not gotten used to that introduction i don't think i ever will at what point did oscar become a possibility uh because i know this journey has been a long one and has taken a lot of different twists and turns along the way i think uh, uh coming into sundance and um after sundance uh the film was well received and um my team and Netflix um, started hoping that that might be a possibility, but uh, what a tremendous honor. And um, there are so many amazing films in the race this year and so many filmmakers that I got to know personally that did incredible work. So to be now in the final five is just a tremendous honor. And, you know, if it wasn't for Gregory Vachenkov and his desire to tell the truth, um, none of this would have happened and I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you. 2016, the New York Times article comes out. 2017, as you mentioned, Sundance. Now 2018, the Oscar nomination on the eve of another Olympics. How do you feel like the world is ready for the Olympics and what role do you think the Olympics play now in 2018? Well, I think the, the Olympic brand has been greatly tarnished. Um, through uh, Gregory's evidence and the information that we've understood as part of this conspiracy to cheat. And part of that tarnishing of the Olympic brand is their actions in regards to this scandal. Um, just the fact that they could allow neutral Russian athletes to compete in the games that could prove themselves to be clean, yet it's absolutely impossible that any one of these athletes could prove themselves to be clean because there is no anti-doping system in Russia, period. There never was. There never has been. And now the lab has been shut down. Gregory's resigned. There's nothing in its place. So how could any one of these athletes prove themselves clean, especially when you know that all of their urine was swapped and, and what uh, Gregory was doing? So the Olympics had a moment. And that moment was to take responsibility for this spectacular conspiracy that cheated tens of thousands of athletes around planet Earth of their medals for the last 40 years, take accountability for this, say it's not going to be tolerated, 
and um, and at least protect the Olympic ideal, which is play fair, be true, be clean, and that handshake that every athlete enters into when they go into competition. Instead, the Olympics decided to drop the ball, uh, tried to sweep it under the rug for a year and a half, and then when they took action, what they really did was a slap on the wrist, and what they actually have encouraged is every athlete on planet Earth to cheat because what they've let every clean athlete know is that the price for cheap cheating is going to, is not going to be that severe and that the Olympics are willing to tolerate these kind of actions. Something I really appreciate about your film is, yes, you're showing you know what's happening obviously in Russia, but also to have the doctor who tested Lance Armstrong 50 times and his tests weren't able to show that he was using. And that element of the story then makes you take the, um, you know, the next step of thinking that, like you said, athletes in all sports are, are most likely or, or probably doping on some level. So when you think of American sports like the NBA and, and Major League Baseball and NHL and the National Football League, do you think doping is as prevalent amongst those athletes in traditional American sports as it is in the Olympic sports? Look, I'm not in a place to um, pontificate on that. All that I know is essentially what I've seen, which is the anti-doping system in sport is broken. And it's been broken ever since it began, and it continues to be broken. Um, and the fixes are not solutions. And you also have the problem of medical science and technology, which is always going to be trying to create a better human and there's always going to be ways around these tests. So um, it's a very difficult situation for clean athletes um, because we're finding more and more that there are so many ways in which to cheat the system. Um, so, you know, I don't have any idea in regards to the NBA or baseball uh, or football, but I think what we've seen time and time again is just because an athlete says they're clean, it doesn't make them clean. This movie obviously shines a light on so many problems existing in sport, but just as a fan of sports, like, what do you love about sports? You're an athlete, you're a fan, in addition to obviously, you know, being a journalist and a documentary filmmaker and all of these things. What do you love about the world of sport right now and what role do you think it plays in our modern day culture? Well, as George Orwell said, sport is war without the weapons. And it still is. I mean, just the Super Bowl on Sunday. I mean, what was that? That was New England going to war with Philadelphia. And anybody in Philadelphia was ready to kill anybody in New England. And everybody in New England was ready to kill anybody in Philadelphia. And everyone in Philadelphia just killed everyone in Philadelphia. Exactly. And, and so the stakes, so the stakes are, are, are that high, right? And, and you see, um, the allegiance of fans. I mean, I guarantee, uh, that Super Bowl parade, uh, like 90% of the city showed up. So you see that people. By the way, that wasn't the parade. <laughs> That's still coming this week. There's more horse shit to be eaten this week. So. so, you know, I mean, you see how, how, how important sport is, um, to communities and certainly on a global level. It's, it's what people care about. And I think, and I think they relate to it on a more personal level than they do politics. And when you look at the scandal and the conspiracy that Russia pulled off, what they were doing was they were using sport, international sport, for geopolitical gain. And so winning a medal for them was asserting their power on a world stage. And what you see with the Olympics is exactly that, is you see the entire world coming together under the illusion of peace, but they're really at war without their weapons. And leaders are using those Olympic Games, especially from second, third world countries or former communist countries or countries like China, to assert themselves geopolitically and show that their countries um, have arrived and are forced to be reckoned with. It's really interesting getting to spend some time with you yesterday at the annual Oscar nominee luncheon. You know, I work for ABC.com and Oscar.com and we get to interview all the nominees and it's really cool to see a, a story about the world of sports sitting at the table amongst other documentaries and other feature films that have nothing to do with sports. So how has it been received by the traditional Hollywood community, the awards community, being that you're the sports movie guy uh, when you're sitting in that room of all those nominees? Well, it's, um, it's funny because I actually don't see Icarus as a sports film at all, not even really in the least. Um, to me, it's a story of meddling 
um, geopolitically. And when we were shaping the film, we wanted to create essentially a, a geopolitical feature thriller that happened to be a documentary. And while the actions are regarding sport, the conspiracy is on a much deeper geopolitical level. And it's my hope that people that see Icarus make that that connection to what is happening in the world today, make that connection to Russia's willingness uh, to win at all costs. So if they're willing to go to these lengths to conspire to cheat for 40 years to win medals, what other lengths are they willing to go to to win? And that same kind of denial of truth, that same cycle of fake news, that same unaccountability for any action or fraud, which is what you see put forward in Icarus, is the same thing that is happening in our country with the current administration, and it's the same thing that has been happening in Russia under Putin's regime, and, you know, I'm hoping that people make that connection in seeing that film, and that it's and that it's a cry to action, not for sport, but on a world level that we're not going to accept this kind of behavior from our leaders. I'm often amazed at how a football player on Sunday can go across the middle or lay out a quarterback and then... Uh, my intention for the film um, was always to show that the anti-doping system in sport was essentially a fraud. Um, and cycling was the vehicle in which I used only because it was a sport um, that I grew up loving and being competitive in. Um, but yeah, I've never been you know, a guy who rides his bike to the farmer's market. I mean, for me, going on a bike ride is basically dressing in Lycra and, uh, you know, and, and going out for a ride. But... Um, in the last few years in, in making Icarus and, and certainly the continuation of, of the film, I haven't been writing much, but uh, hope to get back to it at some point. Lastly, for our audience that doesn't get to go to the Oscar nominee lunch and isn't at the Hollywood Reporter party or, you know, living that life, take us behind the curtain a little bit. I mean, as a fan of film, what's it like to be in that room amongst the top filmmakers and creative people on the planet? Well, I think what was interesting for me is because you're kind of in this small room, everybody's essentially dressed the same. You really have to like, like really put your binoculars on to kind of like spot everyone because you're just all kind of there, just kind of floating around. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful, uh, experience for me, uh, to see so many filmmakers, uh, I admire. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, um, I'm incredibly excited that uh, his film got nominated because I, I just loved it and I think of him as a creative visionary and Christopher Nolan being there um, and, and Jordan Peele um, and Greta Gerwig and, and Spielberg in the room and Meryl Streep. I mean, it was, it was a real honor to, to be amongst those people and I guess in some ways be considered a peer. So uh, that was awesome and hope that it'll be my first lunch of, of more to come. What's next for Icarus? Are there talks of adapting this into a feature, or are you looking to completely switch gears as a filmmaker and take on an entirely new subject matter? Um, not going to adapt Icarus into a feature because um, I feel that it's not going to be anywhere as true as what it is now. And, and I think a lot of times when you see documentaries adapt themselves into features, um, they're never going to capture that magic like Man on Wire versus The Wire. And, and Man on Wire to me is one of the greatest docs ever made. So I wouldn't want to, so I wouldn't want to do that. But, um, I'm looking at, uh, at some feature scripted projects, television projects, and I'm also working, uh, on a couple unscripted projects and thinking about, uh, starting up another documentary as well. Best of luck on, on the new endeavors and congratulations on this. You guys have done something really special that a lot of people are, are, are obviously responding to in a great way. So congrats and thanks for spending some time. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a real honor and hopefully, uh, the nomination will bring more people to see Icarus. Second interview in 24 hours, only one more to go. So thanks for putting up with me. I appreciate it. We're <laughs> 66% of the way there. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. 
The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you're looking for a reason to work with a local GEICO agent, I have all of them. Because I'm the voice of reason. Reason one, GEICO agents could help you save on more than car insurance. Reason two, they can help tailor your policy to fit your needs. Reason three, they're local. And four, they're local. Yes, I already said that, but it's still a good reason. And if you're looking for more ways to save, your local GEICO agent could help with more than just your auto insurance. Stop by or give them a call today. They're here to help. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of. Rick Passmore, who has attached himself to the cinephile brand and taken us to new heights. So the least I could do is give him his own segment. He's a filmmaker himself, and sometimes his movie tastes, I think, can run contrary to the mainstream. But that's why it's invaluable to have him. These are either going to be films that critics did not like and maybe audiences didn't find, or uh, critics liked them and maybe didn't find an audience. Whatever you want to do, Ricky, this segment is called In Defense Of. So what is first up? We, we're debuting new segments here. Dan had his last time, The Everyman. This is your turn to shine. Lion's Den coming next time. So I was thinking about what I was going to do for this segment, and one of my first thoughts was talking about Con Air as one of the great 90s satires of action films. I can't wait. But oh, people love it. Like it, it's It didn't do well with critics, but it's become more well-revered than you would have thought. So I decided I'm going to challenge the listeners a little bit more and go with a comedy that I hold in higher regard than most people do. And that comedy's 2006's Grandma's Boy. Oh my god. This is a hell of an opening number. Here we go. So it's produced by Happy Madison Productions, as you know, Adam Sandler's production company. Roughly about five million dollars rumored. And it doesn't have Adam Sandler in it at all. It stars Alan Covert, who's a longtime conspirator with, uh, with Sandler. He's, you know him from Big Daddy and as the caddy in Happy Gilmore. He plays Alex, who's a 35 year old video game tester and he's an avid stoner. Uh, he ends up moving in with his grandmother, played by Doris Roberts, uh, and her two eccentric roommates, uh, her housemates are Shirley Jones and Shirley Knight. The reason why he has to move in is because he was evicted for not paying rent because his roommate at the time uh, spent all the money on Filipino hookers. So solid setup in the first five minutes. <laughs> Attention grabbing. Uh, Alex is, in a very 2000s way, ashamed of being relegated to living with three elderly women. So he's exchanging grueling chores painting the house, sweeping like very heavy-duty things in exchange for living there rent-free. So in order to hide his shame, he continuously lies to his co-workers who are millennials in their early to mid-20s, lies to them about his living situation, saying he lives with actually three very gorgeous, sex-crazed women, and their unsa- insatiable lust is what's keeping him from getting his work done. He's so exhausted all the time coming in to do his job. So it seems like on paper it's a very typical low low brow Sandler comedy. And it's, you know, the kind of thing that we've been seeing from him as of late. But there's something about this film that actually pushes it a little bit more towards the happy Gilmores and the Waterboys and the Big Daddies than the Bucky Larsons and Joe Dirts and Jack and Jill's. And that's something that like, you see it in a common theme with Sandler movies. When the characters are built to be the laugh, when they're really eccentric and goofy and weird and noxious, that, that's when the film falls apart, if you're building it around that bad character. This film doesn't do that. They, there's eccentricities with the characters, yes, but the comedy isn't driven from that. The comedy is driven from, with the ludicrous situations, which you see in stuff like Billy Madison, which you see in Happy Gilmore, which you see in... Um, the water boy, like an absolutely insane situation occurs. And that's what drives the story. And that's what grandma's boy is filled with just dumb situations one after the other, but built with endearing characters or at least empathetic characters to a point. So there's a handful of really, really raucous moments, constant belly rat laughs throughout. It's only 94 minutes. And the thing that really drives it home 
is the rewatchability of it. And the way I see it is when I saw Anchorman the first time in 2004, I hated it. Hated Anchorman in the theaters the first time I saw it. Didn't get it. Thought it was spastic all over the place. But come when it comes out on DVD, I watch it again. And then it sinks in. And then I watch it again. And it gets funnier. And it gets more quotable and more rewatchable as it goes on. And that's really the stronghold of this movie is that you catch it on cable and you watch it and you realize, oh, yeah, this actually is kind of funny. Oh, yeah, this part is really, oh, he's, you know, the, the scenes with the stoner, uh, with his, um, dealer, Dante, played by Peter Dante, also another, uh, Sandler, con- uh, contributor. It's ridiculous with what he's doing. He's, the first time you see him, he shows up at the door to stay at his place to try, you know, try and convince him to stay at his place. And he knocks on the door and here's Peter Dante just butt naked with an ornament in his hand. And he's like, what are you, what are you doing? He goes, so I'm just putting on my Christmas tree. It's July. He goes, just pause. Why are you naked? And Dante just kind of looks down at him. So he goes, Oh, I am naked. Come on in. Just, <laughs> just kind of real quick, dumb little jokes like that, but built into a story of this guy's trying to find his place in the world. He's 35 years old. He's still doing this. He's living with his grandma and his two friends. Like, how do you deal with that as, you know, a grown man trying to figure this out? So it may not be as bad as Joe Dirt and Bucky all these Larson, Bucky Larson yeah. you know, Jack and Jill especially. They're not built to be that bad. They're built on a more solid foundation of more empathetic characters. It's not quite 40-year-old virgin, which kind of do, did the same thing of an odd character trying to find his way in the world as a, middle, as a semi-middle-aged man or a middle-aged man. But it does, definitely follows that same theme. And it kind of sets up some stuff at the end as well where – you definitely see some very endearing moments with Covert and Doris Roberts and uh, Linda Cardellini, who plays the love interest, Samantha. Wow. There's a great scene just kind of right in the middle after the house party where all the grandmas accidentally drink the uh, pot stash and think it's tea from the roommate that did uh, pass away that uh, Alex is staying in her room. And also another really good scene where he's freaked out about staying in a dead woman's room. And all of a sudden you just hear a haunting voice go, Alex. I died in here right on this bed. And he's freaking out. And it's Doris Roberts under the bed just trying to have a, to have some fun with him. And he just freaks out. And it's just like this old woman. She goes, okay, I'll, I'll let you get some sleep now. But they let they drink all of his pot. And then they get high as, as a kite. And it leads to a crazy house party. But it's just like it's it's a little thing like that where it's not built on the character's crazy. Therefore, the house party has to be crazy. It's just like it's a ridiculous situation that leads to a more ridiculous situation that ends up leading to a really endearing moment where Samantha and his grandma uh, are looking through an old photo album and talking about like, here he was when he was a boy and the, the embarrassing pictures and all that stuff. And then here was Alex's grandfather and we loved him. And there's a really sweet and tender moment with it. And that's the one thing that these Sandler comedies did really well in the nineties and seem to have forgotten lately is that you can't be, you know, just completely, noxious you can't just have insanity just to have insanity you have to anchor it with some tenderness and it did it really well in happy gilmore like i'm going back to this happy gilmore and big daddy and mr deeds they have some sweetness to them that kind of evens everything out so that's where that's where i stand with uh with grandma's boy it doesn't deserve to have the 16 percent on rotten tomatoes that it currently holds but at the same time it's you know it's not high comedy i'm not it's not on the upper echelon of great comedies but it's something that deserves to kind of just be rewatched and like hey you got 94 minutes you just want to have just 94 minutes of laughter go for it right there grandma's boy make sure you tweet us cinephile espn c-i-n-e-p-h-i-l-e espn because this won't make it funny the people are gonna go yeah he's right grandma's boy isn't a rated or are you a lunatic news and notes are very pti-esque because i had to watch oberman on pti last week but errors and omissions Greatest Showman, by the way, $165 million. It's one of the highest grossing musicals of all time. Beat La La Land. The singer who I was raving about, Keila Settle, is her name. She's the one who did This Is Me. I mentioned the film's Roger Deakins shot. He also shot Shawshank Redemption. So think about the cinematography in that film. Um, also wanted to mention 20th anniversary of The Big Lebowski was yesterday. So if you're a Big Lebowski fan... Market 8, dude. And also, Mike Golick Jr., who is making a cameo right now, Big Milk Duds guy, which we completely support him on. 
If Milk Duds wants to uh, sponsor Cinephile, we're all in. You want to sponsor first and last? We're in on that as well. So there's no question. I think he also raved about Thin Mints, which I completely agree with. But Milk Duds is a strong number one. And I think we got pretty good reaction, Mike. I think people were like, yeah, I saw one of them that could stuck in your teeth. I'm like, listen, don't be a caveman and just chomp the sucker. Wait till it melts a little bit. Savor it and savor its goodness. Closing thoughts, Dan Stancic from the Academy Awards. We're all good. Ricky, we're good. Thanks so much for listening. I don't know what in the world we're going to do now because, honestly, I see these movies coming out. There's not much of interest. Maybe I'll go see. Go ahead. You're not intrigued by the uh, Jennifer Lawrence one? Oh, what is it? The Red Sparrow. The Red Sparrow, 48% no? Rotten Tomatoes. She was on 60 Minutes. Good piece there by uh, Bill Whitaker. And she was talking about doing nudity in the film. And she's like, you know, it's my body. I want to own it. And she goes, so if you don't like boobs, don't see Red Sparrow. That's a good selling point. Yeah. 48% though. Mm. Yeah, that's supposed to be good. Although I'm going to St. Louis this weekend for the SEC college basketball tournament, so I'll have some time on my hands. You know what? I'll go see Date Night because I like Jason Bateman, so I'll go see his latest comedy. Game Night. Game night. Date Game night, night was Tina Fey <laughs> and Steve Carell. <laughs> I'll watch Game Night, then I'll watch Date Night on Netflix and make it a night to remember. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. As always, rate and review and give us some love. We're now in top 20, by the way, on iTunes in the rankings. So thanks to all of you. You guys have all made it happen. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. One last thought here. Tom Crean. By the way, Tom Crean does not know that Michael Keaton knew him because he texted me immediately when he saw the tweet. He goes, wait, what are you talking about? And I said, Michael Keaton was asking about you. He goes, I love Michael Keaton. He's awesome. So I can't wait to go talk to Tom Keaton about Michael Keaton. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.